science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome all. On this beautiful Sunday afternoon, and maybe you are already sitting around the swimming pool or lounging by a lake or just driving around enjoying the weather that we've been waiting for. Anyway, during the next hour, we'll try to inform you and entertain you with a number of features. And as you know, I always start out with some questions. First of all, we do have a question hanging over from last week. Let me refresh your mind. What herbal supplement? the name of which derives from the Sanskrit for horse and smell, because the root has a strong horse-like smell, was recently banned in Denmark because of negative effects on thyroid and sex hormones. And this is a supplement that is widely sold here in North America as well. Another question, what cosmetic surgical procedure has the highest death rate? So what cosmetic surgical procedure has the highest death rate? And one more, what do cryptozoologists study? If you know the answer to any of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text either answers to these questions or any questions of your own to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. And when I don't chat with you here on Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact. And uh, as you know, that is a very interesting endeavor. And uh, this week, uh, I've been playing around with uh, Chat GPT. Uh, this is this um, program uh, that is based. Uh, essentially on, on uh, what can I tell you, on artificial intelligence, I guess. And it can uh, basically put together information from around the web. I don't know how it gathers everything, but it will write essays for you. It will answer questions. It is absolutely amazing what, what it can do, but it's also quite amazing what it cannot do. Uh, I started out by... Um, uh, talking about uh, uh, or asking it to do a biography of myself, which, of course, many people try to do just to see what it comes up with. And it was pretty good. It, uh, it came up with everything uh, that I've more or less done. But it also made some fundamental mistakes. For example, it got my birth date wrong. And it also said that uh, I had... Uh, uh, being educated at the Weizmann Institute uh, in Rehovot in Israel. Uh, I don't know how that came about, but there it is. And, you know, whenever you find an error, it, it essentially calls everything else into, into question, right? And uh, uh, the, uh, the issue is that, that uh, while it all sounds very good, I mean, it sounds like it's written by a human, uh, we worry about how trustworthy it is. 
Now, frankly, in in uh, in my line of work, uh, being a chemistry professor, it doesn't much matter because our exams are all multiple choice. But if I were a professor of philosophy or history or English literature, I'd be concerned because the essays that or term papers that um, are submitted by students may totally or in part have been written by Chad GPT. Uh, I think there already are programs that aim at detecting how uh, all of this works, but uh, uh, I don't know how accurate uh, those are. Anyway, I found it to be really very interesting. And when you look at scientific topics, it does come up with some pretty good um, answers to, to questions, but there's always a but. Uh, I um, I did a, a question about the chemistry of skunk smells. Why? Because uh, it's something that I'm quite familiar with. I, I I pretty well know the ins and outs and the details of you know a skunk smell and what to do about it. Because goodness knows, over the 43 years that I've been doing this show, I've been asked multiple times about how to get rid of uh, skunk smell. So I've had multiple opportunities to look uh, look into this. And also, when we teach organic chemistry, it's uh, just a very interesting topic to uh, discuss. So I pretty well know you know about it. And uh, it did come up with um, a pretty good, oh, about an 800-word essay on the chemistry of skunk smell, most of which was correct, except for one, when it misnamed what it called the ingredient that is responsible for most of the smell, and um, uh, it uh, called it skatol. Now, skatol is the ingredient that causes the smell of feces, but it is not responsible for the smell of skunk. Now, that didn't have too huge an impact, you know, in the overall article. It was just one misnamed term. But nevertheless, uh, because I know about this topic, I was able to pick up that error. But suppose that I asked about something that I know much less about, I wouldn't know just how correct it is. So at this point, I, I, I don't think we can, you know, say that it's, uh, uh, you know, trust, uh, trustworthy enough to be used in, in, you know, academia. But nevertheless, it, it certainly is interesting. And what is absolutely fascinating is the speed, the speed uh, with which it puts all of this together. Uh, you know, it types out an essay for you in, in a matter of seconds. And of course, uh, this will just get better as, as you know, the it kind of the program kind of teaches itself how to use the information, and uh, you can also uh, uh, correct it. So, for example, if um, uh, I didn't do this, but but if I were to reply to the essay that it did for me on skunk smell, uh, and I would have replied saying that. The, the term skatol is wrong, I suspect that the next time that it is asked such a thing, it would get it uh, correct. So, uh, I mean, this is uh, something that we're going to have to live with. It's going to be, be more and more a part of our lives, you know, this whole artificial intelligence uh, business. But uh, in the meantime, instead of, you know, just concentrating on artificial intelligence, uh, I, I think we could use... Uh, 
somewhat more natural intelligence in the world. Uh, teach people how to think critically, because that is what is really important when you're going to evaluate uh, what to believe and what not to believe in the information that is presented to you by um, any of these artificial um, intelligence platforms. So, you know, I'll, I'll keep you up to date on, on sort of my playing around uh, with this uh, because, uh, let's face it, it is going to become a part of, of academic life and we'll see what it delivers and what it does not. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, for those of you interested in the sporting world and who are following the World Hockey Championships taking place in, in Finland, uh, Canada is playing Germany in the final and Canada has just scored and they're up 4-2 to two with uh, about seven minutes remaining in the game. All right, uh, I had a couple of answers to my question about the herbal supplement that derives its name from the Sanskrit for horse and smell. One correct answer and one not. Uh, the incorrect answer was Marmite. Now, Marmite is this yeast extract, which was first uh, introduced by Justus von Liebig, the German chemist, way back in the 1800s. Uh, it is something of which the Brits are enamored. I. I I have never tasted it. Um, I, I think it's a salty kind of concoction, and you spread it on on, on bread. Uh, but it is quite rich in B vitamins. But no, it, it it is not something that has been banned in Denmark. Although at one time there was an issue with it in Denmark, uh, because uh, it was not licensed to be a supplier of vitamins. Apparently, in in um, in Denmark, when you're going to claim that any kind of food is rich in vitamins, then you need a special license uh, to do that because you have to prove that it really does contain the vitamins that you say it contains. So anyway, it, it turns out that Marmite was able to do that and it is available for sale in, um, in Denmark. Uh, one of these days I'll have to give Marmite a try because I've, I've heard so much about it, read so much about it. And plus, I'm a big fan of Justus von Liebig, the, the German uh, chemist who did a great deal of fascinating work in, in, in chemistry. Uh, basically, he's the father of the whole fertilizer industry. He's the one who determined that uh, plants need specific nutrients in order to, to grow. Okay, but anyway, I, I did get a correct answer from James, who's always right when he uh, texts in. And uh, he came up with ashwagandha. Uh, indeed, that is the correct answer. Ashwagandha is a her herbal uh, supplement, which is touted to improve muscle strength and thyroid function and cardiorespiratory endurance, uh, supposedly controls blood sugar levels, boosts fertility, improves sleep, and helps with cognition. Now, of course, any time that you hear that, that some sort of uh, herbal extract does all of these things, uh, the, the red flag kind of goes up because this is just not how things work. They don't have an effect on so many different uh, uh, aspects of our life, but never mind that. Uh, it turns out that in, in Denmark, researchers discovered some negative effects on the thyroid uh, and on um, the concentration of sex hormones in people who were taking ashwagandha. 
And of course, we're always concerned about substances that have an effect on, on hormones. I mean, you know, it just about every day we get some information about um, bisphenol A or phthalates or, or parabens, substances that supposedly have uh, hormone-like effects. So it seems ashwagandha does have that too in sort of a negative uh, way. So this is why Denmark has banned it. It's uh, readily available here. It's sold in health food stores. It's sold on online. I, I don't know how risky it, it really is, uh, you know, the, just because, you know, one study has shown some hormonal effect, uh, you know, doesn't mean that, that uh, uh, we have to take that very seriously. We have to, to see what the consensus scientific opinion on, on this is. And not enough research has been done. And of course, not enough research has been done on the supposed benefits uh, either. Uh, like any plant material, it contains numerous compounds, many of which are steroids. And, uh, you know, when you're looking at natural steroids, there are always questions that need to be asked about, you know, what their physiological impact uh, may be. So anyway, that is the correct answer. Uh, it was uh, ashwagandha that was uh, that was banned. And uh, I have another comment about Marmite uh, telling me that it does indeed have a very distinctive flavor, unique flavor. Uh, think of it as yeasty, salty, soy sauce-esque with the consistency of old engine oil. Some people really like eating it and some people don't like eating it at all. That's one of our correspondents tells me that. Uh, I'll give it a shot. I'll get some Marmite and uh, try it and um, you know, see what uh, my taste buds think of, uh, of, of that one. Anyway. <clears throat> Uh, ashwagandha uh, was an Indian um, supplement, at least it originated in, in India. So uh, let me tell you another sort of Indian-related story about a cobra, which of course is the snake that is found in India. You know that truth can be as strange as fiction. In The Speckled Band, a classic Sherlock Holmes story, and you know that I'm a big fan of, of uh, Sherlock Holmes, Anyway, a wicked murderer trains a snake to climb down a bell rope and uh, bite a sleeping victim. The idea of training a snake by rewarding it with milk makes no sense. Uh, that's just ridiculous. You cannot train a snake. But of course, snake venom can indeed kill. The speckled band refers to the snake that Holmes chased back to its owner and coiled around his head before biting him. Now we go from fiction to truth. An unfortunate woman in India entered into an arranged marriage with a husband who had been enticed by a large dowry. The bride had a learning disability, and the husband soon found this overwhelming and decided to do away with her. He purchased a Russell's viper, a particularly venomous snake, and placed it on the stairs before calling her to come down. The scheme didn't work because she noticed the creature before it could strike. The husband caught uh, and kept the snake to try again. This time, he first put a sedative in his wife's food, and when she was asleep, he held the snake and forced a bite. She ended up in hospital but survived. Next, he purchased a cobra, and once again with the victim asleep, he forced the snake's fangs into her arm. This time, he got the desired result. When questioned, he claimed the snake had slithered into a room from the outside. Although snake bites are not unusual in India, the circumstances in this case were suspicious, 
because investigators found no way the snake could have found its way into the bedroom. Also, the depth to which the fangs had sunk into the flesh were not natural, and the police suspected foul play. A video with a dummy showed that a cobra would just harmlessly slither over the body and would only bite if provoked. Furthermore, experts testified that Russell's viper was unlikely to be found in the area. Enough evidence eventually accumulated, and the husband was sentenced to life in prison. He should have been thrown into a snake pit. So that's our uh, cobra uh, story. And um, uh, cobra venom uh, contains dozens of different compounds, not all of which have been uh, isolated. And uh, they have different functions. Uh, some have an anti-clotting effect uh, on, on the body. Some uh, have a neurotransmitter uh, effect. Anyway, obviously, cobra venom can kill. And thousands of people are killed in India every year by, uh, by snakes. Uh, the snakes just love rice paddies. And there are a lot of those uh, uh, in, uh, in India. Uh, one myth about the cobra. It cannot hear. So when you see a snake charmer and you see him um, playing a flute and the cobra kind of coming out of the wicker basket and uh, seemingly uh, move according to the, the sound of the flute, uh, no, it cannot hear. What it is doing is visually following the movement of, uh, of the flute. And uh, it is, uh, you know, pretty interesting when you see that because the, the cobra has this ability to, to raise its head and, and kind of lift up half its body, you know, so it's almost like standing up. And you can see it kind of swaying to supposedly the music of the flute, but it's really just swaying to the movement that the snake charmer is, uh, is doing. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Game is over in Finland. Uh, gold medal for Canada. 5-2 to two win over Germany. Uh, fifth goal into an empty net. And that's it for the World Championships for this year. Uh, Canadians uh, do it again. All right. Well, uh, I asked about the cosmetic surgical procedure with the highest death rate. I got a wrong answer saying that it is liposuction. This is incorrect. So that question is still open. And the other question I wanted to have an answer to is what do cryptozoologists study? Cryptozoologists, what do they do? All right, now down to the screwworm. What an interesting name that is. Well, back in the 1950s in the southern US, the screwworm was literally screwing cattle and figuratively doing the same to ranchers. They were losing lots of money every year. Why? Well, because of what this worm was doing to cattle. It turns out that it isn't really a worm at all. What we're talking about is the larva of the screw worm fly. Uh, the creature does look something like a worm. 
and the little spikes that cover its body give the appearance of the thread of a screw. If these spike, it is these spikes, you know, that allow this worm to burrow into the flesh of animals as a screw might. And once this creature burrows into the flesh of the animal, it starts chomping away, literally eating the animal alive. And this, of course, was a huge problem for ranchers in the South. They, they were raising cattle. The animals were dying. Well, scientists were finally able to find a way to proverbial bring the screw fly to its knees. But it's an interesting story because it took a critical observation about the female sexual appetite, a laboratory full of rabbits, a Nobel laureate's concern about nuclear war, an X-ray machine, and a letter from the Caribbean island of Curaçao. The life cycle of this screwworm fly is only about three weeks, which is very short, but boy, can it ever wreak havoc in those three weeks. The female lays eggs about 400 at a time, and it does so in an open wound uh, on an animal. And uh, though these wounds on cattle are relatively common because the cattle are branded, they're dehorned, they're castrated, or sometimes they're just scratched by barbed wire. So once the, the fly lays its eggs, they, they hatch into larvae. The larvae then basically end up eating this animal from the uh, inside out. It's, it's really uh, uh, dreadful. So in the 1930s, entomologists Edward Nippling and Raymond Bushland uh, were struggling to find a solution to the screw fly problem uh, in Texas at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's research station there. And uh, they found a way to raise the flies in lesions that had been inflicted on rabbits in the, in the laboratory. And it was then that Nippling made a crucial observation. I don't know how on earth he did this, but he found that while the males will mate promiscuously, the females mate only once. So he had an idea. If somehow the male flies could be sterilized and released into the wild, the females, unaware of the male's lack of potency, would be lured into mating, but they would produce no offspring. Well, this sounded strange even to colleagues, and one amusingly commented uh, that uh, Kipling and Bushland could not possibly castrate enough of the male flies. Well, of course, they were not talking about castrating the flies. They had a different idea. Uh, the idea was to use some sort of chemical agent that would sterilize the males. And there was already a model for such a possibility, a chemical called diethylstilbestrol, a synthetic estrogen which had been developed in the 1930s to prevent miscarriage, but it was also found to inhibit sperm production. So, uh, you know, there, there was a model that, that, you know, there could be chemicals that would lead to in, uh, infertility, but none of the chemicals that they tried were effective. Uh, and the researchers' frustration continued until 1950, when Nippling happened to come across an article by Dr. Herman Miller, who had received the 1946 Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology for the discovery that mutations can be induced by x-rays. Well, that article had nothing to do with screwworms, but it warned about the dangers of radioactive fallouts from nuclear testing. And in this article, Miller alluded to his observation that fruit flies exposed to x-rays become sterile. And this prompted Nippling to contact Miller and ask him 
if he thought that, you know, sterilizing the screwworm fly is a possibility. And he said, yes, he thought that this, this was a sound idea. And uh, so uh, Kipling and Bushland uh, decided that this was worth a try. They had a friend who um, uh, had some hospital privileges and had access to x-ray equipment. So they took some of their flies, exposed them to the x-rays, and indeed discovered that they became sterile. But that was in the lab. What about, you know, in the real world condition? And this is when uh, Nippling, who already had made a name for himself as an etymologist, received a letter from some official in, in Curaçao, the Caribbean island, where they had a terrible infestation of the screwworm fly, and uh, the, the larvae were killing the goats on the island, which was the main supply not only of meat, but of, of milk as well. So here was an opportunity. To, to see whether or not the, this idea of uh, uh, making the males sterile and releasing them would work. Now, x-ray machines were not practical in terms of sterilizing large number of flies, but it turned out that radiation from cobalt-60, which is a byproduct of nuclear reactors, fit the bill. So in 1953, millions of sterile flies were dropped from the air over Curaçao and Believe it or not, the screwworm fly was eradicated. Uh, this was so successful that uh, Texan authorities decided to duplicate it, and they started airdropping the uh, sterile flies. And uh, by 1966, cattle were no longer tormented, the ranchers could relax, and consumers enjoyed lower beef prices. Uh, now, since that time, there have been a few sporadic uh, uh, infestations of the screw from fly, but but uh, uh, they can be controlled. Uh, they mostly uh, are migrants from South America, and uh, there's a way to harness this this problem because in Panama uh, there is a facility that continuously raises sterile flies, ready to release them at the first sign of infestation. And that uh, uh, that has been done, and that can control, uh, you know, the migration of, of active uh, active flies. So it's a very interesting story. Uh, the uh, researchers uh, did eventually receive a, a Golden Goose Award in the U.S. for this, which uh, recognizes uh, research that has been carried out that at first sounds strange, but has uh, very serious. Uh, uh, implications. And this indeed did, because the screwworm fly was just devastating to cattle populations. But, uh, you know, curiously, uh, given that government-funded research resulted in the development of, of this method, which was highly effective, nevertheless, the granting of government funds uh, to, quote, study the mating habits of the screwworm fly is still sometimes brought up as an example of wasteful squandering of public money. It wasn't a wasteful squandering of public money. That money was very well spent. It saved farmers millions and millions of dollars in cattle losses. And as I said, consumers benefited as well uh, because uh, cattle prices, of course, had been rising because of the death rate due to the uh, screw fly infestation. So very well deserving of the uh, uh, Golden Goose Award were these two uh, 
uh, American uh, entomologists Nippling and Bushland. So there is a fascinating story for you about a curiously named insect, the screwworm fly. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, soybean oil, butter fat, caramel center. I'll eat that. Okay, a very interesting question about uh, the screwworm and uh, sterilizing it with radiation, whether or not this technique would work with mosquitoes. <clears throat> I think that has been tried, but I, I think the problem there is that the, the, the not all species of the uh, mosquito, the, the female mates only once. So um, I'm not sure, you know, uh, how that would work. But I know that there have been attempts to to sterilize male mosquitoes to see, you know, uh, what would happen. But uh, I think so far I haven't seen that uh, that's uh, positive that it, it works. Uh, Teresa did not give up on my question about the cosmetic surgical procedure. Uh, she first proposed that it was liposuction, but now she gets it right. It is indeed the Brazilian butt lift. Uh, scientifically known as the gluteal fat grafting. It's a procedure that attracts women who want to have a butt like uh, Jennifer Lopez or Kim Kardashian. But some pay for it with their lives. Fat is removed from the abdomen uh, or from the sides or from the back of an anesthetized patient uh, by liposuction. And then it is injected by means of a cannula into the buttocks through a series of tiny incisions. Complications can occur if accidentally the fat is injected into a blood vessel, which then means it can travel to the lungs and cause a pulmonary fat embolism. The mortality rate is said to be one in a few thousand, whereas with cosmetic breast surgery, it is about one in 72,000. Many deaths are in South Florida where cosmetic clinics offer discounts and some doctors perform as many as nine operations a day. And sometimes non-doctors do the liposuction. Uh, fat should only be injected subcutaneously with the use of ultrasound to prevent deep injection. Uh, there have been uh, two deaths a year in Florida, roughly on average, and 70% of plastic surgeons uh, who had patients die were in fact board certified. Now, of course, uh, you know, when you're undergoing a surgical procedure, uh, any kind of surgical procedure, you know that there is a certain risk involved. Uh, but uh, it's a question of risk versus benefit. And here, if the benefit is just having a larger butt, of course, it's questionable whether that's a benefit in the first place. But if that's the only benefit to be had, uh, is it worthwhile to spend the money because these are not cheap? and take a chance of some sort of um, uh, complication. So that's the correct answer. The problem is the Brazilian butt lift. And I have only one outstanding question now is about cryptozoology. What do cryptozoologists uh, study? 
You know, there's a lot of controversy about adding coloring agents to food. Why? Because they serve only a cosmetic purpose. They don't have any nutritional value. But I want to talk about one specific uh, colorant, that's carmine. And this is a red colorant that has been singled out because of its presence in some yogurts, like strawberry or cherry, where it gives the impression that there's more fruit than what the yogurt actually contains. Now, if you cruise the internet, you'll come across various warnings about carmine, explaining that it's an extract made from the dried and pulverized dead bodies of the cochineal insect. And the inference is that this is not something we should be eating. After all, who wants bug juice in their food? The fact that carmine derives from an insect has no bearing on its use as a food dye. I mean, nobody would object to using beet juice as a red food coloring. Why not? Because they deem it to be natural and therefore safe. Why is an insect any less natural than a beet? It isn't. But neither is that of any relevance. Food dyes are subject to the same regulations, whether they are synthetic or natural. And as I have spoken about ad nauseum on this program, you cannot equate natural to safe and synthetic to dangerous. The only way that you know is to study a substance. What matters is what the safety trials show, not the source of the dye. So, while I agree that I would rather not see carmine used in food, it is because I don't like deception, not because I'm repulsed by an insect extract. In any case, it isn't as if there were ground up bugs used. The dye is highly purified and it doesn't have any insect properties. It doesn't have any insect remnants in there. Now, it does not mean that it is totally risk-free. Uh, it is true that for a small number of consumers, it can be problematic. Why? Because they may have an allergy to this. Uh, some people can experience hives after consuming products with carmine. And in rare cases, there can even be potentially life-threatening anaphylactic shock. Now, there's also an issue of vegetarians who might consider carmine an animal product. Uh, so, uh, of course, one can argue that uh, the label should mention the source of the dye so that anyone who wants to avoid any sort of animal product, and I guess that insect can be considered an animal, they, they should be able to do so. But in any case, why do we need a dye in yogurt, or for that matter, in any food? If you want your yogurt to look like it contains strawberries, put strawberries in it. <laughs> Don't try to fool people by uh, coloring it red. So, you know, I mean, I've spoken about uh, the food dyes before and I've, you know, expressed my opinion that while I don't think that there's any kind of significant danger associated with it, uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm not in favor because it, it is really a form of, 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 of deception. Now, some people argue that the, the dyes are used to make food look more attractive, but why would you want to make food more 
attractive, especially when it is questionable food. You know, I mean, look at the stuff that the food dyes are in. Uh, you'll find them in things like Fruit Loops or or, or Cocoa Puffs. No, you, you're not going to find them in, in oatmeal. Uh, so why do you want to make foods that we should not be eating extensively look more attractive uh, anyway? I think that's the argument against using food dyes. And furthermore, I, I think while you know food dyes essentially are safe because they've gone through all kinds of, of, of testing, nevertheless, they are a marker for highly processed foods. And these days, you know, we um, hear a lot about these so-called ultra-processed foods and how we should be eating less of them. And uh, while it's difficult to have a, a specific definition of what ultra-processed foods are, uh, obviously foods that contain a lot of uh, additives have been highly processed. So when you see uh, dyes present uh, on the label, it means that you're talking about an ultra-processed food and, uh, you know, probably better to limit intake of that. Well, that's it. We are smack out of time today. But fret not, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>